Welcome once again to Hotbox the Cinema, the first episode of Hotbox in a uh, post-corona world. We're hotboxing the quarantine mm-hmm. now. That's true. It's weird now that uh, I don't have the option to like, watch stuff in a theater anymore. Yeah, you know, we um, our last episode, I guess everything had started kind of hitting the fan when our last episode came out because it took a little bit after we recorded for it to come out so we didn't really acknowledge it in that episode of course even though everything was starting to change but yeah like in the past i guess month a little over a month now like so many things have shifted and it feels sometimes like trivial to think about it but it definitely has already had a huge impact on so much of media and will continue to have an impact for a while i guess just to like have like a little like documentary note for someone listening like way in the future recording during the uh covid19 coronavirus pandemic oh yeah oh yeah yeah pandemic real pandemic hours real never yeah. thought that was going to be a thing like i don't know you know we both grew up pretty religiously and the fear of the end times is always there so i heard a lot about plagues and pestilence but at a certain point i kind of put that stuff out of my brain and i never thought that i would be like here during it yeah it seemed more like a uh like a a fable that carried values exactly with it or something like that more so than an actual event but it's weird though because also like so many uh video games and oh yeah and science fiction stuff like that we both, I guess, have played are things that just are constantly kind of poking around at the idea of, you know, different types of collapses. And One of the first movies I watched when things were really starting to shut down was Hobbs and Shaw, which, despite my love for the Fast and Furious movies, I didn't see in theaters last year because I heard that Ryan Reynolds was in it, and I was just like... It's fucking sad. It's literally also the Seven Bucks, the rock production, as opposed to Vin Diesel's really shows... Yeah, the he doesn't have quite the auteurist flair anymore that Vin Diesel has. Yeah. And but anyways, that movie is about like a virus or something or other. It's like a nano machine virus. It's some weird like twist on the normal like bio warfare villain shit. 
Yeah, and I just felt like the first couple of movies that I inadvertently watched as things were happening were like that and were just like casually about a virus or casually about a quarantine or like then I bought Death Stranding, which of course is extremely on the nose now. Um, yeah. It's just so ingrained in so much of like American Western fiction at this point. Yeah. Apocalypse shit. It is weird now because... Uh you just kind of see a lot of things adapting toward internet stuff. Obviously a lot of theaters are like closed now. Um, and some of them actually are like, I don't know, more arts funded ones and, and different stuff like that are starting to like pivot to like online models for like curation and for like community that happens within a theater space. Yeah. I mean, we've also seen, you know, obviously like once the big theaters, started shutting down you know all of the wide releases that had just come out or were about to come out kind of shifted to a vod release like twenty dollars you could rent emma and the hunt and these movies um which is like pretty hefty price but of course those movies like immediately leaked so Mm -hmm. i think most people watch them illicitly in in high quality but like you said you know there have been things like kino lorber the art house distributor um has been doing this partnership with art house theaters like yes yeah, so you could watch like baccarat or saint francis or something yeah or um yeah the whistlers i think another one of them um a service called kino marquee where basically you know you rent the movie digitally like you normally would but you choose your local art house or whichever art house you want to sponsor to you know give a donation to essentially that would be the price of a ticket yeah the like arts theater here in nashville has some kind of i mean they already had like a pre-established relationship with criterion because they have like some like video feature about like their theater on like the criterion uh channel and stuff or maybe on their youtube but yeah they have this new type of relationship now where you can like buy a certain amount of months of criterion like subscription through them and then you get like a half price and they get some kind Mm -hmm. of buffer through that or something Mm -hmm. um and they've actually started encouraging that too by building like a internet film club basically around it where they're doing things that are available on the criterion channel but they have like discussions in a zoom call presuming that everybody's seen it with you know having like speakers like they would at some normal screenings and stuff yeah this past week i actually because i contribute to the nashville scene um they asked me to participate on a zoom panel with frank dobson um, an associate dean from vanderbilt we talked about sam fuller's the steel helmet um, and it was really fun and i was like you know i don't know those kind of things like maybe in a pre-covid world you feel like if they did it nobody would tune in but there was actually a really nicely sized audience Mm-hmm. Um, and people, you know, asking questions, making comments in the chat. And it was like, it's been really surprising seeing things like that take off. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, they've done two of them. I watched one you were on. I also have Sam Fuller and Steel Helmet. Uh, so I wanted to check in on that, but they did another one on, uh, Abbas Kirstami's, uh, certified copy, which I watched. And after watching it, I was like, I don't know that I want to watch all these, like, this whole thing where people are going to talk about this movie that affected me in a really kind of very personal way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I ended up watching and still getting a little bit out of it, but it, they also uh, have started doing like programming of like live watches mm-hmm. for like, their more like midnight type, like rowdy screening slots for like space jam and stuff. 
So they'll have like Twitch programming that plays simultaneously. I don't know if they actually broadcast the movie or not. Yeah, I've been seeing, you know, a lot of people use this Chrome extension Netflix party to like simultaneously watch things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this filmmaker and music video director Zia Anger who did, has this multimedia performance called My First Film, which is like she shows f- clips from her unfinished first feature, which never got accepted by a festival. And then sort of in the notes app on on the screen next to the clip sort of does like live commentary about the experience of making this movie, about people's reaction to it, about just like her own life and about kind yeah. of the challenges of being in the festival world as a, as a woman. Um, and she's been doing those over zoom. Um, and there've been other screenings too. Like actually like in the past two days, I've watched two different movies, um, over Twitch that have been live streamed. I haven't seen any of the the Twitch broadcast movies, I don't think. But one that really interested me that you pointed me to was Time Code. Yeah, so it's funny. Like, I don't know. I had not been on Twitch before. You know, I had watched a little bit, but I didn't have a Twitch account. I'll be honest. And most of the time, not worth it. Yeah, no, it's not. But, you know, we sort of jointly made a Hotbox the Cinema Twitch account for potential future use and i've been going on there and djing a lot and doing dj live streams but a couple days ago my friend micah gottlieb who's a film programmer just decided to show this movie on twitch called time code from 2000 which is directed by mike figgis who did leaving las vegas and it's just this like very very turn of the millennium um sort of digital experiment where you have these four channels going simultaneously um almost like 24 uh mm-hmm. where it's just these like unbroken takes with digital cameras following these like people in the film industry um just a lot of like recognizable actors like Sandra Berkeley, Holly Hunter, Selma Hayek, Stellan Sarsgaard and the sound sort of drifts in and out of like the one that you're supposed to be paying the most attention to. And at first I started watching it a little bit as a bit because it seems like one of those movies that you like read about in a film textbook where it's like, oh, here's an example of like something that used digital cameras in an innovative new way. Isn't this crazy? Yeah. But it's really like a little bit corny because it's very deliberately about just like people bumping into each other and lives coming together in a sort of like crash or babble type way. But it's actually like kind of, uh, I don't know, there's just some like very crazy uses of music and the way that just these like threads come together. You know, a lot of them, it's like, it's just shots of somebody not even speaking. It's just like somebody's face for an extended period of time. And it was kind of like crazy. And I don't know, just like watching that movie alongside people just chatting with my friends was like pretty insane and made the movie like even more affecting in some weird way. Yeah. Um, I remember when a lot of uh, quarantine stuff originally started started popping off. Uh, Museum of the Moving Image had their like, you know, Y two K internet thriller kind of like screening series they were doing, um, and they ended up like doing like a six panel uh, Twitch stream of all the movies playing at once, and it was like, uh, oh no, that was. Um anthology the anthology film archive series i don't know the rep theaters that's okay live in uh yeah no but um yeah they they showed it was like johnny mnemonic hackers virtuosity the net the net um was existence in there or was that 
I don't no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but I think there was one other one. Strange but, Days. Yeah, yeah, it was Strange Days. But yeah, that series was programmed by um, John Derringer, who runs the website Screen Slate, which has also sort of reconfigured a little bit in the wake of Corona and quarantine because it's like an NYC specific sort of local site that's like a listing of all of the screenings going on at movie theaters in the city yeah and every day there's like a different essay by a different writer about one of the movies so ostensibly you know if you don't live in new york you could just like read the essay every day and you know not look at the listings but they send out a newsletter um and they've rebranded the newsletter as stream slate Mm -hmm. uh, instead of screen slate and so they're just spotlighting different things that are streaming now yeah the all the all weekly here in town where you used to write a good bit about the movies and stuff has now pivoted to most of the film writing just being like at home streaming options, like program your own film festival type stuff. Yeah, like it's all they all their normal events critics picks for the Nashville scene have been reconfigured to be just like things you can do in your home from watching to just like different hobbies and activities. Um, I wrote a blurb about like the little peep documentary, everybody's everything. So it is interesting also seeing like how film criticism is trying to shift. And now it's just like, Oh, what's on streaming? Like, let's just cover anything yeah. and everything that is streaming that you want to write about because what the fuck else is there really? Um, with very minimal new releases. I was yeah. even thinking, I wasn't thinking about this until a couple of days ago when I was recording an episode of Cinematary. Um, but my friend and Cinematary co-host Andrew Swafford mentioned like everybody's end of year lists are going to be really dismal looking this year because there's going to be like three months of actual new releases and then probably like a ton of Netflix originals or something. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like games writers and like games like media personality people talking about how the like game of the year list this year are going to be so bad because the industry has been like so irreparably fucked like games that were coming out in the next few months are now just getting like indefinitely delayed um the e3 trade show this summer is like not happening at all so you're gonna have like a lot of like weird dispersals of information even like the the console rollouts right now are so like distributed over just like small bursts of web transmissions rather mm -hmm. than like a full-on just like crazy e3 media blast thing um just because it's easier to dominate a long-form content cycle than just like do it all at once and have all this hype at once that fades fast yeah it's had i feel like kind of a domino effect on different medias where it's been staggered where the impact has been hitting you know like when it first started happening yeah i was just thinking about like my writing work and i was like oh well you know theaters are starting to close down so i'm gonna lose like my normal movie review gigs and i was like well that's okay you know music will still be coming out so i can keep reviewing albums and, you know, the first kind of media industries that got hit were, like, the ones where you have to be in a physical space. So, like, movies. Music. Art, yeah, live music, art galleries, theater, you know. Some of those publications started kind of shuttering temporarily or indefinitely and yeah. furloughing staff because it's, like, there's no more plays or fashion shows or whatever. TV was kind of unaffected initially and music you know recorded music not so much but then it's like 
you know, TV production is shutting down and there's like a kind of a backlog of content, you know, that will be released over the next month, but then it will get to a point eventually where, you know, they won't be able to have produced anything more to kind of sustain the release schedule. And the same thing with music. It's like certain genres will continue unaffected. The ones that people can like, you know, record in home studios, but some of you see some of the bigger pop releases like Lady Gaga, things that are really heavily like promoted by in-person appearances and that are also require a lot of musicians to be in a physical studio together. That stuff is getting affected too. And games too, you know, as well. Yeah. I mean, games are still able to like be made at home, but like the manufacturing of stuff, you're starting to see like a lot of like holdups on like the, uh, the last of us two got like delayed for maybe a third time from a summer release kind of indefinitely just because actually like manufacturing a big, like, triple a traditional go and buy the the game at the store type of like experiences i don't know kind of weird but also naughty dog is like a studio that's pretty notorious for like needing like so many people just like in-house crunching in order to like finish up and produce those kind of games it was so insane right as lockdown was really starting seeing everything ha- that happened with gamestop with them trying to like brand their workers as essential workers and ignore state orders just because of doom eternal and animal crossing coming out the same day yeah and they've been i mean gamestop and like hot topic are two stores that have kind of like realized they're like gonna go under in the next couple years and they're both approaching the same kind of apex point of like just pivoting all the way to anime and fandom objects and like not actually like selling as many video games anymore or anything like that so GameStop's had like Funko Pops, all kinds of crazy shit for a long time. I hadn't been in one until I went to go buy Death Stranding because they were releasing it early um, the day before. But with Doom Eternal and Animal Crossing, it was just like going to be a very like huge day for like sales that they kind of needed. So they were trying to like stretch out and not not close their stores down early. Um, they actually ended up like trying to implement social distancing on a release schedule. So they were breaking the street date for Doom Eternal and selling it a day early to try to split up the two game audiences and and distance that way. But then people weren't trying to go out and like buy a video game in a store that they can click a button right. and have on their console when all this is happening. And yeah, they were trying to like say they're essential businesses and sending memos to like store managers to say, don't close. They like almost got their business license rejected by the state of Pennsylvania for not going under state issued quarantine. You, you know, you mentioned the kind of precarious financial position of these retailers and, Movie theaters, the big movie theaters have been experiencing something, I think, a little bit similar where they've been, you know, in not necessarily the greatest financial position for a while now because of streaming and et cetera, et cetera, all of that stuff. And for a long time, the theaters have been very resistant to the studios trying to change how movies are allowed to come out on streaming. You know, there's a... a, a delay window between a movie's theatrical release and its streaming or rental digital rental release that they're really strict about and it took a literal pandemic for the theaters to budge on that and now you have like amc theaters basically exploring bankruptcy options i mean not to mention all of the independent and and kind of privately uh non-corporate theaters that will go under but it's like affecting the major chains too and it i think kind of raises a lot of questions um yeah it's even like a a meme that uh the x-men new mutants movie has been delayed so many times now and that movie was supposed to like finally come out and then it got delayed because of corona 
Yeah, it was actually kind of weird that that movie, The Hunt, was one of the first big, like, movies to get hit with the virus, because that was the movie that got delayed anyway, because of very, like, unfortunate circumstantial timing of the release, timing up with, like, three pretty recent, like, mass shootings. And, like, conservatives getting And, like, getting, like, the pres... Yeah, like, the tweeting, the president tweeting saying to delay the movie, because it's just going to cause all this harm and everything. Right, the kind of Joker pandemonium... Yeah, it actually reminded me of, like, when I went to see Peter Bogdanovich's Targets on, like, a a print screening because the digital version of that movie doesn't have this, like, warning card from Paramount at the beginning, mm-hmm. but watching it on a film strip does, and they, like, have all these statistics about gun violence and everything at the beginning and saying how many deaths happen, how none of this gets litigated by, like, any lawmakers or anything. And they put that there because they were scared the movie was just too violent and it was going to cause such a thing. I actually, when I first saw it, I thought Bogdanovich put that in there because he was trying to make a a movie about gun violence in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, the movie that we're kind of centering around today is uh, one of the first casualties, I think, of the pandemic in terms of cinema. And that is Bloodshot. Yeah, it was actually the last movie that I saw in the theater. I went to go see it like the Thursday that it came out. And we were talking about like major chains, like adapting to the changing situation as more places Mm -hmm. were starting to take it pretty seriously. And it was like the day before AMC announced they were going to cap their auditoriums at 50% capacity. Uh, But it was weird going to see it because I sat down before the movie and all the seats, like the theater just had this like Lysol fume all over it. Oh, God. Of like disinfectant and i was like oh that's kind of weird and then i realized that i'd never smelled like disinfectant that strong in a movie theater before and it made me think about how gross those seats probably were beforehand yeah i'm sure those things are like only barely cleaned um you know we were yeah. we had been planning to record this for a while and that opening weekend i was trying to get out to see it here in new york but i was just sort of like you know things were getting starting to become seriously locked down that weekend and like i had a job interview and i remember going to the job interview and i was like am i supposed to even be going to this interview right now like and i texted the person like hey just want to make sure you still want to meet and she was like oh yeah but you know we met up and of course like we could only talk about everything weird going on but i was just sort of like you know they announced a 50 percent capacity cap and i was just like i don't feel like it would maybe be a good idea for me to go out and see this movie, you know, even though things, some things are still operational and functional. Um, yeah. and then they announced, like they started once the theaters closed, they announced the like $20 rental thing. And I was like, well, okay, bloodshot is going to leak like immediately. So then I ended up watching a file simultaneously in different places with some friends on a Plex server. Um, and Damn. we texted <laughs> while watching. So, you know, you had the, the pre, lockdown experience and i had a true post lockdown viewing experience that's true i feel like watching it on plex would well, like while texting other people would be kind of an interesting way to view this i mean it's a pretty um nuts i think it's like yeah it seems kind of thematically coherent yeah it's just like you know i mean a it's just kind of a crazy movie with uh, some twistiness to it so that's sort of satisfying to to be able to chat with other people but i also think it's like very much in keeping with sort of vin diesel's like whole mo because he's very much about bringing people together asserting himself as this global citizen 
reaching mm-hmm. as many people as possible, as many hearts and minds, you know, bringing the whole world together. His studio is named One Race Films, referencing kind of both the Fast and Furious movies, but also the human race. So I don't know, just in that way that like a lot of these kind of quarantine uh, uh, screening new ways of screening have kind of brought people together. It seems like very much in keeping with what Vin Diesel is all about. You talked about, um, we were talking a little, a little bit about the steel helmet as you like watch that again for that Belcourt, uh, zoom discussion. Yeah. And you mentioned some of the comparisons between like the fast and furious movies and like platoon movies and kind of the, yeah, so the person I was talking with on the panel, um, this academic Frank Dobson, um, who's a professor at Vanderbilt, he has worked a lot on the World War II and Korean War platoon subgenre, you know, following a sort of ensemble of, of troops, a motley crew as they carry out a mission or something like that. You know, like the Steel Helmet is, is sort of the most perfect example. And as we were doing the discussion, um, he mentioned that he's like recently sort of his new idea about the platoon movie is that the fast and furious franchise are kind of like the, um, the modern retrofit of that genre because they're so founded on this kind of like diverse ensemble of people brought together by a common goal. Um, and it's interesting because, Sam Fuller is sort of a proto-action director. You know, I think you see in his movies, like Pick Up on South Street or The Crimson Kimono, these like big action set pieces that really pave the way for like action to become a codified clear genre like it does in the 70s and 80s. But when we think about action movies, we so often think about like the individual and individual heroics and Fast and Furious kind of returns to those roots of the platoon movies by looking at like, how a collective works together, you know, of people of different backgrounds, races, whatever, how they come together. And in the platoon movie, it's all about coming together in the service of patriotism or a national identity or some kind of goal as a state. But in the Fast and Furious movies, it's just about those emotional bonds between this group of people. The comparison between the two, I feel like has a lot of, I mean, obviously the way that those bonds are made are, I mean, in the same way, like, The Breakfast Club is, is that it's always in an adverse relationship to, like, an authority body. Mm-hmm. And, like, people who are forced by circumstance that probably would not, like, choose somebody just by looking at them or being around them. But because of sometimes the transactional form of the relationship, um, very functional, like, yeah. giving and taking on both sides, it kind of creates these, like, bonds between individuals. And when I watched Pick Up on South Street recently, I actually thought a lot about, like, The Matrix and I mean, in some of the action and everything like that, but also just like the way that these like bonds are mm-hmm. made, but understood to like mean something, but not mean something uh, just because of the fact that everybody's kind of trying to survive in opposition to just different types of like state and police structures, which I think Bloodshot does attack at a certain point that like same type of approach to these people who don't fit within mm-hmm this this thing but instead of it being like a a governing body or anything like that it's actually like a kind of like a startup owner cybernetics kind of like tech wonderkin yeah yeah so basically i mean the difference between like the steel helmet and another war movie in the fast and furious movies is that 
in the steel helmet, these people are brought together by the mission and trying to enforce some kind of order, you know, the orders of empire, whatever they're basically programmed to do as soldiers. And well, let me, let me, let me sorry, real quick. Let me just finish contrasting this with the fast and furious, but I mean, fast and furious, obviously the, the group is brought together by, um, their kind of resistance to order and by being outside of those bounds, Obviously, Paul Walker in the Fast and Furious movies starts as a cop and then kind of goes outside the lines. But then the whole franchise like circles back to they basically all become cops. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like Steel Helmet kind of has that because you have descent toward like maybe the national like or imperial project. But, you know, forced by circumstance to join the army. Obviously, that movie draws a lot of the a lot of like the surface that that movie is working on is about race because that is such a clear um, component in the like composure of the group and everything like that. But it's also something that's clearly talked about in jokes some people make at the other person's expense or, you know, remarks uh, that others will make. I think the thing about like the Fast and Furious movies and their tor- turn toward surveillance and kind of the deep state which it also bears mentioning that the Fast and Furious, the ninth Fast and Furious movie has been delayed a year because of Corona. Oh yeah, that was one. Um, I forgot. So, uh, but it seems to suggest that like, you know, these are characters who want to be outlaws and want to live their lives off the grid and apart from society. And basically what the movies end up saying is that the only way to truly do that in this sort of like, panopticon of a world that we live in is to like submit yourself to the deep state like fully submit yourself to law and order and authority so that way they can like erase you from existence and make it so you don't have to follow the laws because you're ultimately just like enforcing the laws yeah so you don't you can do whatever you want but you still have to like enforce the goals of empire which i feel like bloodshot is also kind of on that wavelength because it's just about like these people who just live this like totally dark existence you know apart from just the lives of (laughs) normal people um but i think that like vin diesel is just kind of throughout his whole career like interested in that like idea of the outsider and the outlaw and i think you see it just like in the sort of persona and the identity that he projects to the world because he's somebody who is you know, from a, a mixed race background, his mother's white, his his stepfather is black. Um, but he said, I mean, I'm sure he probably knows, but he just doesn't want to reveal it for whatever reason. He said that his mother knows what race his birth father was, but has never told him. And so he's like, I don't even know exactly what my race is. So I kind of just identify as like truly a global citizen. So you see in different movies... You know, he'll play Italian American or Jewish or Cuban American yeah. or a character that's not explicitly one thing or the other, but it's maybe coded, mm-hmm. you know, or suggested what, you know, his background or identity is. And so in that way, he kind of just, you know, some people say it's maybe a cop out. It's maybe him kind of shying away from specifically claiming and proudly celebrating a specific identity. Or maybe that it's like cynical and that it's a way to like reach as many demographics as possible, which you've seen in like the worldwide appeal of the Fast and Furious movies. But I feel like for him, maybe he genuinely thinks about it as some kind of philanthropic thing of like, 
I have this message of like love and I want to just spread it to so many people. So I will like identify as every possible identity yeah, and, and try to transmit it to all of those people by being someone that, that anyone can relate to. Yeah. And obviously like one of the early like short films that he made is multifacial, which is written, directed, produced all by him. And it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Of, it's, you know, kind of autobiographical in a sense of him being an actor going and auditioning for different roles and many exchanges at different auditions being like, Oh, we expected, you know, someone with like darker skin or, you know, yeah. so lots of different, I mean, profiling, but within the context of like the business of acting. Yeah, no, you know, he goes, he goes for like an African American role and they're like, Oh, you know, I can read you, but you're not dark enough or going for, um, an Italian role and they're like, Oh, you're too dark or going for a Latino role. And they're saying, Oh, you know, you don't actually speak Spanish and there's no place for him to really fit in at all. Um, and you see in like the monologue he gives when he finally gives an audition where somebody listens to him and takes him seriously. He mentions his father was an actor and he says, you know, my father, uh, was a black actor, but he wanted to be a great actor, not just a great black actor. So that kind of, I think I gets into a little bit of like that problematic area of like trying to transcend race or something like that. Yeah. But I feel like for, for Vin Diesel, it's this sort of identity is like literally like the engine of a car, you know, it's dependent on these interlocking gears that sort of shift into various positions. And so you're not maybe like using all of those gears at once, but they're all sort of there working together, influencing each other. And you can shift into different positions based on the situation and based on what you need to do, Um, which is basically, I guess, just like code switching. But um, I feel like Vin Diesel kind of does that on the level of acting where he just is whatever he needs to be. And um, it's not, I don't know. It's just like all things he's like all things at once. Yeah, I guess it. I mean, I'm not compares comparing this discussion of Vin Diesel and I guess like racial ambiguity to Sylvester Stallone because Sylvester Stallone, not a great person, but it in multifacial, it did remind me a little bit of Sylvester Stallone's approach to Mm-hmm. getting early roles by writing roles for himself based on, you know, qualities that a lot of other people had kind of said, we can't cast you in this thing or that thing because you're not enough of this, or you have too much of that approaching that in a way that fits yourself. It's very similar. I think career trajectories and sort of star personas because Sylvester Stallone was always sort of a heavy has an unusual way of speaking. Um, but somebody who like took himself seriously as an artist. And so he was like, you know, I'm this kind of like heavy buffed up type of character, but I don't want to just play somebody who's just hard and not sensitive. So of course he writes Rocky and that's a big hit. And then in the eighties, you know, he, he really jacks up and becomes like a huge action star, sort of like Vin Diesel does. But I think underwriting it all is this like, desire to sort of carve out your own sort of specific niche of identity. It's interesting because Vin Diesel at first, well, actually, no, I think what's interesting is in both cases, they sort of have these physical presences and these personas as actors that like codify them as jocks, but they both sort of 
regularly identify themselves actively with nerd culture. Stallone, by like sort of treating himself like a thespian and a, almost like a kind of a playwright or screenwriter. Um, and Vin Diesel also sort of doing that, but by also by literally like you know identifying as a gamer. You know he's played D and D for decades and does interviews about that. You know does like fun YouTube videos playing like D and D with games journalists or like different nerd commentators or whatever. Yeah, and he also is like always talking about his like love of dancing you know, records himself singing, like, corny videos. So he's constantly doing things to, like, upend that kind of reading of himself as just another, like, muscle-bound beefcake or whatever. I mean, I feel like, actually, Vin Diesel, we talk a lot, or at least I've talked a lot on this podcast about some of the comparisons between, like, video game avatars and actors in ways that maybe they are not, like... I mean, they're not the whole movie, they're not the whole video game or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but often they're, like, the the like key or at least the most readily available thing that like the audience has to like guide them through something and kind of like the thing that you anchor onto the whole time. Um, and Vin Diesel, I mean, kind of fits into some kind of molds of like the avatar actor, like Keanu Reeves being absolutely this, this person that lends themselves in, in many different directions. Um, but also sometimes maybe leaves themselves very blank, um, and, and projectable. Um, mm-hmm. but also, I mean, Vin Diesel for a while now kind of dormant or defunct, uh, had a, a video game company called Tygon Studios, which is more just like a subset of Starbreeze games, but they made like, uh, two Chronicles of Riddick games, one like off Fast and Furious game called Wheelman. There was like an iPhone app tie-in game for the third Riddick movie, but I think that was a, like an outsourcing kind of thing. But, like, those Riddick games are all about that team at Starbreeze that now has, like, moved on to machine games and makes a lot of the Wolfenstein reboots um, are, like, very invested in, like, the embodiment of the first-person shooter, even though a lot of games like Halo and stuff like that are very weighty and very... I mean, they make you feel, like, tied down by something, but they Mm -hmm. aren't... I don't know. Whenever you play, like, one of the Riddick games or even the new Wolfenstein games, there is, like, a feeling of, like, occupying a space or maybe interacting with its limits. Um, and like the Riddick games are really immersed in, or maybe not immersed, but invested in uh, embodying you as yeah, Riddick yeah. and making you feel like incredibly strong, but also incredibly vulnerable. Um, lots of great mirrors in that game where you look in the mirror and you are Riddick and you're holding the Ulocks in your hands. Yeah. Um, a little bit like the Peter Jackson's King Kong video game being this thing <laughs> that has so many, like it's a first-person shooter in a first-person game, but has so many things around the edges that are informed by other aspects of having a body, other than being able to hold yeah. a gun and aim down the sights. You know. Well, I think that's the the avatar analogy is like perfect, and it's most. I mean, maybe more literal with Vin Diesel than any other actor, just because he's you know kind of working in games and so aware of games, just and and um, is a gamer. But like any good avatar, I mean, Vin Diesel presents himself as both like very human and that he uh, has this sort of uh, racial ambiguity and kind of identifies with multiple identities. He's also sort of frames himself a lot of times in movies as somebody who, even though he's like physically 
capable and has this prowess. He's also very vulnerable. Like when we are introduced to him in Pitch Black, the first Riddick movie, he is bound in chains and basically like enslaved and um and but also, he, I mean, implied that since he has these bounty hunters all around him who are delivering him somewhere, I mean, it's implied that if he didn't have, like, that type of bondage yeah. holding him back, he would also be very dangerous. Right. I mean, in the same way to continue with the Stallone analogy, it's like in Rambo First Blood Part Two, <laughs> a little bit that, like, electric crucifixion scene where... Rambo and Stallone prove their strength by being tortured. I think Vin Diesel has a tendency towards that sometimes. But at the same time, he also identifies as sort of beyond human and extra human, you know, and the sort of cybernetic enhancements in the eyes of Richard Riddick Mm -hmm. um, and just the like physical superheroics and extreme stunts of Dom Toretto and Xander Cage, and then maybe to like its greatest sort of apotheosis in Bloodshot, where he's just this like totally artificial human, basically, a just like pure Robocop. And so it's he's an avatar who's very vulnerable, emotional, human, like identifiable, but also there's that feeling of embodiment and empowerment from embodiment in having those artificial enhancements. And so he's just kind of like a cyborg, I feel like, in the Donna Haraway type way of like these just um, interconnected pieces of identity that have been sort of fused together. Mm -hmm. And Bloodshot is really, I don't know, it's frustrating because I feel like people were very dismissive of this movie and there is a sort of blankness to it like there is about Vin Diesel. But I I mean, kind of in the way there is about like an airplane movie or something. Yeah, like it's, it's got a very generic, like, <clears throat> you know, just orchestral action score. Yeah, but I feel like actually there's a lot of... So the Riddick games, one thing I didn't mention is they're a little bit like... Well, the first Riddick game came out kind of around the time of... I think it may have been 2004. Escape from Butcher Bay was around the time that, like, the Enter the Matrix game was happening. Matrix Path of Neo... Um, but kind of that time when the Wachowskis were, had a very large platform and were using it for this very massive transmedia storytelling, um, across all things. And that's also what the Riddick games do. I mean, their original stories told within the Riddick universe and act as their own kind of like filling in different gaps within a story that's not contained to movies. I mean, even like the Animatrix, there's a Riddick motion cartoon, Riddick Dark Fury, there's, uh, I think there's Riddick novels, and there are plans for a Riddick TV series, Mech City, which seems to be, like a lot of Vin Diesel projects, a little uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's very interesting to kind of go back to the role-playing game metaphor. I feel like that's really how Vin Diesel approaches things as an actor, is like every... I mean, compared to stars of his stature, he honestly doesn't do that many movies. It's It's been more since he started appearing in the MCU. But it feels like when he, he... It feels like he considers his franchises very deliberately. And whenever he has a new character added to his repertoire, it's like a very big deal almost to this like coming out degree where he you know makes this Instagram post. He always talks about the characters like with their full names sometimes. And it's like these these roles are really like a part of himself mm-hmm. um, to the point where uh, one of his long running D and D characters, this elven witch hunter named Melkor 
was the protagonist of a game that Tygon Studios was developing for a long time and was then the inspiration for The Last Witch Hunter um, from 2015, which he said recently that there might be a sequel, or at least that he's like writing a sequel Damn. during quarantine. But it was already the last one. Is it going to be like the... It's like need a, to see the first Witch Hunter to get it? It's like a Final Fantasy 15 predicament or something. Oh, God. Uh, Barter 6. Exactly. Uh, but one point of crossover that kind of made me... I don't know, it unlocked a lot of the movie for me, honestly, was looking and kind of researching the director, David S.F. Wilson. Um, and we were talking about the Animatrix. He works at Blur Studios, which is kind of just a general mm-hmm. computer animation studio that kind of works in several different industries, whether it's film, special effects, or video game, like promotional cinematics that aren't actually made within the game engine. Um, but one direct point of crossover to him would be in talking about the animatrix. He actually directed a few episodes of the Netflix series, love death and robots that like kind of anthology cartoon that was actually made in total by blur studios, um, or at least overseen by them. But several of their, their employees were directors on different episodes and everything. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, he has done like trailers for games like The Division, Titanfall 2, Bioshock Infinite, Mass Effect 2, Force Unleashed 2, Star Wars The Old Republic, which is also another like massive fan-based kind of live storytelling um, through community type of experience. Uh, but also, I mean, in looking at maybe the film work for Blur Studios, mm-hmm. he was the visual effects supervisor on Avengers Age of Ultron, which I think is interesting whenever we're talking about Bloodshot because that movie is one that uses these very like lush, um, like silky types of computer animations and types of composited images to tell a story that's about two manufactured consciousnesses, like two actual artificial intelligences, and yeah, they're on yeah. like opposite ends of this moral spectrum where the one voiced by like Paul Bettany or whoever is good and the one voiced by james spader is just like awful and gonna kill everybody so i don't know having kind of this like moral hand wringing about good ai versus bad ai Mm -hmm. the problem with ai is the programmers and not maybe an inherent one in itself which uh bloodshot kind of suggests that's the problem with soldiers you know the problem with the soldier is who's giving the orders not the soldier itself Mm -hmm. um but before we get into that more just talk about blur studios just a little bit more i think you had mentioned that tim miller of uh deadpool and terminator dark fate is affiliated with blur Studios. yeah he's the owner which seems like some kind of like weird like like monopolistic thing of hiring a director and then them coming with their own special effects team, which is kind of an interesting form of like modern auteurism. No, I mean, it kind of harkens back to like the producer units of the old Hollywood studios where it's not directors necessarily, but you have a like specific production unit, a a creative team working in one genre, which is how MGM is able to churn out a bunch of musicals in the fifties or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think I saw that Tim Miller was like visual effects supervisor on the old Republic and a few other games and also Terminator dark fate. It's interesting, uh, was co-written by David Goyer, of course, of the Nolan Batman movies, but who was also a co-writer on a couple of the call of duty black ops games. It has also written some recent star Wars VR 
experiences. And I think that this is like an, inter- you know, it's, it's a relevant point for Bloodshot and for Dave Wilson. And I think that a lot of people criticize Bloodshot for being too video gamey, which it definitely is like very video gamey. Yeah. But I think regardless of your feelings about that, I think it's like more interesting to, to say like, let's look at the crossover and liter- and creative talent between video games and films. Mm-hmm. I think that's more interesting to explore that to, than to like use that as a pejorative saying that a movie yeah. is like a video game because there is, I think it's maybe underexplored a little bit, like people who are working in both simultaneously and how that impacts the aesthetics of both forms. Yeah. I mean, I talked about naughty dog earlier, but like they're, has been a lot of discussion about them recently in terms of like just different like malpractice and everything. But apparently part of the reason for Naughty Dog Games and like their approach to like, I guess like interaction and kind of like vitality happening on the screen in front of you in like a cinematic Mm -hmm. way or sometimes ways that feel derivative of just like, you know, prestige cinema, like The Last of Us being something that so clearly bears like No Country for Old Men and like children of men and these different types of like very trademarked late like movies they're also a company that employs like increasing amounts of like film animators because it has such a bad Mm -hmm. reputation for crunch in the games industry that film animators are now kind of flocking over to them so that type of like the type of flourish that comes with a film animation background Mm-hmm. is now starting to color their games more and more, which you see in, you know, promotions for The Last of Us Part Two, where different types of, like, portrayals of violence and conveying, like, mm-hmm. really crunchy, like, bone sounds and stuff um, and different types of just, like, behaviors happening on screen is also a way that you're starting to see not just inspirations from film, but actual, like, like trade-based education and, like, work experience actually starting to come in and write the, the, the literal, like, language of, of another art form. I mean, it's fascinating because it's this kind of like piggybacking, like back and forth, ping, pinging chain of influence between the two mediums. Because you said, you know, The Last of Us, super influenced by No Country for Old Men and this certain look of kind of serious cinema. Mm -hmm. But then it goes back the other way and like Logan comes out and everybody is like, oh, this is obviously like ripping off The Last of Us. And and taking from that book, yeah, uh, for that playbook, and I don't know. It's just like, you know, the ideal of AAA games for so long has to like been to reach that cinematic level of quality, whatever that means. And then on the opposite side, it's like film is constantly trying to reach the immersiveness and kind of relatability of of video gaming yeah which is just like vin diesel is very interestingly in the middle um and i think is one of the few people who's figured out how to like be a playable film protagonist you know yeah we actually talked earlier about um i guess like that type of like computer animation production like as a form of like auteurism it actually reminded me a little bit of uh brett leonard the director of like virtuosity and lawnmower man mm-hmm. making these very big um kind of bombastic like early 3d animation like blockbuster experiments and then eventually just moving over to like the imax like experimental animation studios and totally like leaving 
film behind and going straight for like the crazy multi-sensory input experience type of mm-hmm. theater screenings i guess kind of like we've talked about with like 4dx and stuff but you mentioned like vin diesel being this person who is very invested in interacting with his audience not just as a star persona on his instagram and everything like that but also finding ways whether in movies or in video games or even he has like a a, he had a music label for a little bit that i don't really think put out much well i mean he he did he did rap back in the day he's got that track with arthur russell out there that's true um and his beautiful vocals of course anybody who knows his internet presence knows his covers of stay by rihanna and yeah stay high but he's someone who's very invested in finding ways to like interact with his audience in different different aspects and kind of using the strengths of different mediums to 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 portray that i don't know if he still is but at one time he was the most liked man on facebook (laughs) jesus but i mean the movie's one that i think uh it talks a lot about like using your body or using different parts of your persona as Mm -hmm. like as an asset obviously i mean the word asset within video games is like this is just like a file within a directory that the game then like will stream to like make a texture on a rock or something like that an asset Mm -hmm. can be kind of it's kind of just like a malleable term just for something that is used in the production of the other thing and you know something that is mendable something that's malleable um and so it kind of talks about um, video game assets because the movie has these sequences where he is a soldier he dies he gets this you know operation to become kind of immortal basically robocop him exactly and then they start altering his memories and they do it in in ways that blew my mind when i saw it for the first yeah. time and i didn't know if i was like making it up or not because it's like absolute like shard cinema it's literally like the thesis of that book just like made into a movie where you have them going and editing his memories using non-linear editors that look like Premiere, um, mm-hmm. using like 3D modeling software to switch out assets within his memories, like changing out a payphone with like a bloody knife or something like that, and changing different shaders and textures on it and different effects, yeah. changing out character models, having like 3D capture studios that mimic the way these 3D characters are motion captured in video games and movies, and having them like appear within this like memory that he has through photogrammetry like i don't know it it is something that literally is about manipulating the assets and things that come like comprise your memories and your thoughts in a way that motivate you to go and affect something in the world i mean it literally uses like action movie cliches as basically like program code and the movie starts off with this whole kind of very cliched thing where like his wife and child are murdered by this terrorist and he dies and comes back up to life and wants to get revenge but then it's revealed that actually none of this is real and he's just like put to sleep after every mission they edit his memories and make it think that like whoever the target is is the person who killed his wife so it makes it really personal and it makes him like absolutely want to complete the mission because there's this just total blood vendetta, you know, to every mission. And there are these kind of hints throughout the movie that like things aren't really quite what they seem. 
And it just gleefully gives into these like very, very sort of action movie cliches like the the flamboyant villain dancing to a pop song. You know, it starts off with Psycho Killer, which becomes this like psychic trigger to Vin Diesel throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's a trope, you know, that like uh, the last movie we talked about, Sonic the Hedgehog, even uses that. You know, it has Eggman dancing to like the Carpenters or the Zombies or some 60s pop. I think it was the Zombies. Yeah, and, um, you know, that there's a thousand examples of that kind of trope, and you kind of roll your eyes when you see it. Um, but then it reveals that that's just, like, the programming. You know, it's supposed to be cliched because they're just basically using action movies as the materials for his memories. Yeah. And, like, one of the interns at this company who does this which is run by guy pierce um he's like a screenwriting intern basically like he's like oh i got i got screenplay ideas you know and Mm -hmm. so i imagine this like guy who like couldn't hack it in the film industry so he like joined a private military contractor to like make fake movies yeah and at one point they have um guy pierce like comment on how cliche it is to actually use psycho killer in one of the memories they've done and how yeah. he's just running through all the bad action movie cliches, and that becomes a part of the text. But it's also interesting because the movie begins in this way. I mean, the last movie I can really think about, like, respawning and, like, learning about the nature of your existence and the way that video games kind of force you to was, mm-hmm. like, Edge of Tomorrow. But even that is something that is sl- so slow and plodding yeah. through this kind of process of you, I don't know, making your way through basically this video game level but this one i mean opens up and literally the first shot of the movie and the opening sequence of the kind of breach and infiltrate like hostage negotiation like opening sequence then is brought up on one of these non-linear editors as they remake his memories before he died and they start editing that and changing out the assets within that so it literally calls in the thing that you see when the movie starts and the first images and the first kind of like impartings of the logic of the movie onto you as you're kind of just like learning how it works and getting impressions of it you see that then become something that is edited within the movie to change the way that vin diesel approaches i guess life on the other side of his amnesia it also reminded me a lot of uh universal soldier day of reckoning um which was like the last universal soldier movie from 2012 directed by john hyams which has a very similar premise with the like sort of programmed disposable soldier whose memories have been implanted to make all of his missions personal vendettas and to make them all revenge missions and then he kind of gets awokened to that and like realizes he's being programmed but it doesn't really reveal the full twist until the end and that's what's so crazy about bloodshot is that it's pretty early into the movie that the rug is pulled out from under you and you see through this kind of like network of of tropes And so the movie, you know, reminded me of so many different things, you know, RoboCop, we already mentioned Edge of Tomorrow and Universal Soldier, Upgrade, uh, Inception, all of these just like sci-fi action movies. And the fact that it's like deliberately about like editing memories and uh, according to the trips of, of action movies and memory rendering makes me like love that it re- love that it's like such an uncanny kind of assemblage of, yeah. of different parts but also it's something where the like assemblage and sometimes the secondhand sourcing of all this material is something that is so also 
I mean, part of the actual story of the movie and the, the like actual text that it is like communicating because you have obviously the asset changes and like them kind of like piecemeal altering a scene to where it's no longer the same scene um, just by slowly replacing objects, replacing people, replacing meanings. Well, maybe not replacing meanings, but, you know, altering things to make new ones. Um, but also later on, you have uh, the character who is like the rogue hacker who is kidnapped by Vin Diesel and then helps them take over the people at the end. The one who played like Winston and New Girl. Yeah, I know. It was so fucking funny to me because he's got this horrible British accent and I knew him so well as Winston on New Girl. Yeah. And uh, and his also his name is Wilson Wiggins. And it's just like the, it's the most ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, hacker sidekick buddy character. <laughs> But when Vin Diesel goes to kidnap him, you see Guy Pierce and his team have, like, uh, trackers on Vin Diesel. So they're, like, tracking where he's going. And they're like, oh, well, what's going on inside this? Why is he going there? And they're like, oh, that's he, like, this guy that he's going to employs this hacker. And Guy Pierce is like, how do you know so much about this hacker? And he's like, oh, I use some of his open source code to make our, like, memory editing software. And Guy Pierce is like, you used open source code in, like, our million dollar startup. And the guy's like, yeah. And he's like, well, why didn't we just fucking hire that guy? Uh, the assistant's like, oh, we tried to, but he didn't want to work for our type of company for, like, moral reasons. But it's something where literally, like, just, you know, open source, like, to the community transmissions are then integrated within this, like, new product, new process. Genre is just open source software. Yeah. Oh, my God. Literally, Fuck. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Woo, so that becomes, buddy. like, a literal, like, part of the, the movie. I don't know, that's something that, like, was so, like, hanging over the whole movie as soon as that moment happened, and it really opened it up, too. It's a cyborg of, like, of tropes and archetypes in a way that reminded me a lot of the Resident Evil movies, because those movies, like, you know, you clearly have, like, the Mad Max sequence, the Alien sequence, kind of pilfered from other movies but i love that because it's about this like mutating virus that's like cobbled together and it's also about like clones and like um the mila jovovich character alice you know you learn that her identity is basically unstable because she's this like she thinks she's a single autonomous person but she's actually like a series of clones whose programming has been altered and shifted over time by this company um and that's basically the same with bloodshot <laughs> and i mean actually speaking of cyborgs i mean the movie is one that is so densely also kind of pivots this general theory of just like assets and 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 bodies and different ways of altering these i mean there is it's a the company that it's a literal cybernetics company uh you you have guy pierce being a cyborg who has this uh robotic arm with many different points of articulation within like each finger having like three digits that are posable um, you know, rotation of your wrist and everything. Uh, Vin Diesel becomes a cyborg using nanomachines as blood to keep him alive. Um, and actually the opening of the movie, I guess, in talking about stealing things from other people and, you know, creating cyborgs out of dead people for political and corporate ends, uh, the opening of the movie is exactly like, there's so many, like, images and things that are directly taken from Mass Effect 2. This thing that opens up and this legendary commander dies and then is brought back by this multimillionaire played by Martin Sheen, called The uh, the Elusive Man. Uh, I mean, the opening of the movie, like, so directly mirrors, like, Mass Effect 2, where this legendary commander dies, is brought back by a multimillionaire using cybernetics. Uh, the girl looks a lot like... What is her name? Oh, Yvonne Stra Strahovski. 
she's like the actual actress who plays the like sidekick in uh mass effect 2 but yeah the multimillionaire martin sheen brings you back and everybody's like augmented and cybernetic and you have to go and do this big multi-million dollar suicide mission thing the guy pierce's assistant uh who ends up sabotaging at the end has like this ventilation hole on her neck that he controls using a wrist watch and will literally like suffocate her uh but then you have like the other people in the uh the it's kind of like a cybernetic pmc but you have someone whose eyesight isn't that great and he gets like shoulder mounted camera arrays and he in this crazy chase sequence has a motorcycle helmet that is covered in th- like 360 cams yeah. and he creates this kind of like photogrammatic mesh of of images and then he has a drone that flies in the air that he's able to basically create himself a third person perspective on himself as a racer and is like racing around from this top-down perspective like it's an old like super nintendo racing game or something from an isometric view or even just like following behind you like kind of the grand theft auto drone camera that's kind of just like standard third person language these days these media extensions you know these cybernetic enhancements just extending the self individually into a network Mm -hmm. of devices um and in fact that character like literally looked like a video games like cinematic character to me like he doesn't really make eye contact with vin diesel because he's ashamed of what they're doing to him but in the way that he doesn't really make eye contact with him it looks like you know how sometimes in video game cinematics the characters don't really feel like they're actually making an eye like an eye match or they're maybe it's like a little bit askew and so there's kind of that uncanniness or it feels like there's a little bit of a drag on the face movement, almost like um, in, in Southland Tales when um, Sean, uh, what's fuck, what's his name? Sean William yeah. Scott. Sean, yeah, when he's looking at himself in the mirror and there's like a delay in the mm-hmm. mirror um, when he shakes his head, it almost feels like that a little bit. Yeah, and so I mean, it also has like at one point they have like this body hacking knife to hack Vin Diesel's body and like take back control and it reminded me of like titanfall 2 where you literally have a hacking knife that you stab in to like computers to hack stuff it also is like in um far cry blood dragon you stab yourself with a knife like this neon virtual knife to like heal yourself and i mean there's also like i feel like the movie though i mean we're talking about kind of bodies being these assets things that are modifiable the context around them being modifiable Um, And the movie kind of using the digital compositing that the studio is known for between mediums as a way to kind of do that. Uh, Also, I mean, the the plot of the movie is this thing where Vin Diesel is this, it talks about soldiers as assets and soldiers as economic units in a way where he is, you know, brought back from the dead and he no longer has ownership over his body. This is something that Guy Pearce literally tells him. Guy Pearce says something about like, oh, guys like you and Vin Diesel is like, I'm only like I am because guys like you yeah. want me to be that way, you know, because basically because he's like, you've profiled me as like a killer. So th- that's who you d- decided to program mm-hmm. me into being, um, which made me think, you know, that soldiers are basically in this sort of paradigm. Soldiers are basically just like whatever they're yeah. programmed to be, you know, their orders are just this kind of code. That's the like, or at least that's the like idea yeah. of what a soldier is supposed to be. And I guess, I mean, you can kind of read that on kind of any movie about soldiers and a lot of the movies where you read that you have to do most of the work yourself. But I mean, this is a movie that already 
is so invested in talking about the creation of images that then motivate people to become soldiers or that motivate soldiers to i don't know just see them like going through the path of becoming a soldier as a way to achieve this end that they're very bought into and is sold to them i mentioned paul w sanderson earlier and it reminds me of his movie literally called soldier which is kurt russell raised from childhood as this part of this project called project adam where they're like trying to raise Mm -hmm. the perfect soldier from birth and so he's basically totally blank and like doesn't have it doesn't have a personality it's just this he's totally suppressed and you know, we think of Kurt Russell as this like mouthy sort of actor who's really known for dialogue, but he's very silent in that movie and only mm-hmm. says like a hundred words or something um, because he just can't function as a human without the programming of, of military command. You know, to take it back to the Steel Helmet, I mean, that's a movie about like the different kinds of programming of soldiers. All these soldiers have different reasons for why they're there. And what they're doing and the main sergeant that we follow zach is this guy who has just like internalized everything and cut himself off from human connection because that's the Mm -hmm. only way he can survive in combat he just is totally unfeeling and he's just this horrible bigoted racist guy because he's just like i have to i can't treat anyone as a person i have to turn everyone into like a horrible stereotype because i can't be connected to them and i can't see them as a real human because if i do then i won't be able to keep killing and there's this moment where he he's like shocked back into world war ii the movie set in korea and the whole movie he's been saying all these like um, anti-Asian slurs and various other offensive phrases and he's shocked back to Normandy Beach on D-Day and he starts just yelling kraut and like you know saying oh like the Germans are going to get me and so you realize that like he doesn't even have any like ideology of his own he's just like programmed hate from commands you know turns the enemy into just a complete other and that's the only way that he can endure and keep going and um, and I don't know. I mean, I think you can think about a lot of war movies or movies about young soldiers, you know, something like 1517 to Paris or American Sniper, where you see like the motivations for why people became soldiers. And it's about the programming of, of images of propaganda, you know, literally the kid in 1517 to Paris has posters for full metal jacket and letters from Iwo Jima in his room. So, you know, he's like programmed to, to want to go to war because of war movies. And we've talked a little bit on different uh, episodes of this podcast about some recent movies like Richard Jewell and Gemini man that are directly about the, the images that make people believe the things that they do. But Ang Lee's movie before Gemini Man, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, is literally about the collision between the, the individual soldier and the trauma of national warfare and the individual um, versus like the celebration of the soldier image during the Iraq war where you have uh, literal you know flashbacks yeah. happen as they're at this halftime show and fireworks are going off and they ripple across the screen and totally overtake your vision. Um, or you have like steve martin playing the owner of the dallas cowboys and like talking to these soldiers in a way that is just i mean it's literally just a collision of language between the soldiers experience and what americans even think they're doing over there or why they should be there when the soldiers them the soldiers themselves in the movie are already starting to question that purpose of why they were there to begin with even if not like 
like criticizing it, but starting to have kind of these like fissures happen within their brain. No, I mean, it's very kind of similar to Flags of Our Fathers, uh, the Clint Eastwood movie about that famous photo from Iwo Jima of the raising of the flag and all about these soldiers who were in that image who were celebrated when they came home, but kind of were dealing with the trauma of the war, which has Fast and Furious's Paul Walker in it. And also Billy Lynn features Vin Diesel as like the commander of Billy Lynn's platoon. And he's like this mystic poet soldier you know and that's his response to the trauma of warfare is like writing poetry about it which kind of goes along with um i don't know something about vin diesel like his identify identification as like an artist versus action hero this sort of dichotomy of of his self that he's constantly straddling i really wish that bloodshot were in 120 frames per second same but high frame rate baby smoke it on that one uh video game it actually reminds me as i mean there's this general concepts of like video games and assets and characters and stuff like that but one moment in a game and it wasn't really written in a way to make you think about it but one moment that i keep coming back to is in the another starbreeze studios games actually was the 2013 remake of syndicate the old uh pc game um but that game is yeah. one where you're this like future uh, dystopia, like corporate assassin going around. It's actually kind of strange because the whole game, like progress reports at the end of missions are codified to look like, like an, your Apple fitness app, your step counter. Like it literally looks like a bio fitness <laughs> and bio tracking app. Um, but it's about like headshots and kills and points and all that stuff. But there's one sequence in the game where you're chasing somebody and you have to go. It's a, it's a uh, dystopian society that's spread vertically. So you have rich people living up above this pollution cloud and these skyscrapers. And then eventually you go down to the actual like street level of the city and you're having to chase these people around. And you go inside this church at one point and there's only one person in there. And it's this character who is kneeling at a pew and kind of just rocking back and forth and looping through this animation of looking upward, extending arms praying and literally just like going through these different kind of gestures and just looping endlessly like created just to sit there forever and worship this in-game god but also i mean on at the altar there's like all these tv images and a lot of the images actually kind of looked like the starbreeze studio logo in a way and so it was this moment that kind of maybe the moment itself wasn't great but the thought that it led me to made it stick out where i mean you have this video game character kind of worshiping iconography that looks like the logo of the game studio that made the character to begin with and created it to only loop through these animations of worship and thankfulness and all of these things but that was the only reason why it was made was to i mean the god that it's pointing at that created it is literally the people that developed that video game and that's something that i feel like bloodshot also starts to attack a little bit infinite endless reprogrammable warfare all you have to do is wipe the hard drive and reboot the program Mm -hmm. refresh it baby um i mean literally one of the last call of duty games was called infinite warfare right and those games have gone from world war ii propaganda to like this what near future like just basically imagining a future where war is just all reality is ever since uh the fourth numbered game originally titled modern warfare they've kind of gone from like matching or like rhyming with present day conflict to progressively speculative fiction 
But now the weird thing is that it's kind of like just looping back on itself and they're just constantly remaking and re-releasing the Modern Warfare series, which was kind of just the heyday for the the franchise anyway. And so now they have, they not only remastered Modern Warfare and actually released that alongside Infinite Warfare and Special Editions came with this remaster of the fourth game, to now they have a new game that's a reboot of the Modern Warfare franchise and the game is just called Modern Warfare. And it also they remastered the campaign for the second original modern warfare game now. So now that franchise is just kind of falling back in on itself. And rather than playing warfare, it's playing call of duty. (laughs) It's like just every American war is basically kind of a remaster of a previous war. Because we always think about earlier wars as like metaphors for current wars. You know, we want, like I think about this moment in Joe Dante's movie, small soldiers where This dad, this suburban dad is sitting on the couch watching the History Channel and he's like, you know, World War II is my favorite war. And we always, you know, they try to frame things or sell it to the American public as World War II, the good, clean, moral war, supposedly, Mm -hmm. versus, oh, you know, Afghanistan is the new Vietnam. It's the, the sand pit, the quagmire that we can't get out of you know, this just burden, yeah. um, this gaping wound or something like that. And so we're always trying to like replay the match or like, you know, re-win Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, you have moments like, it clean. like Rambo 2 where he asks if we get to win this time. One last note about Call of Duty I'll say is that the new Modern Warfare game has a moment in the campaign that actually, I mean, takes the literal U.S. war crime, the highway of death from the Gulf War. Um has a thing called the highway of death in the game but in the game it was perpetrated by the russians instead of the americans i'm i'm sorry you just said this would be the last thing to say about call or at least that was my last thing it bears mentioning you and i have been playing a lot of call of duty recently because of the new free battle royale which i have not really played a ton of call of duty i played a little bit of the older you know the third one, Modern Warfare, World at War, I think, on friends' consoles yeah. back then. That was the, the big zombies hit. That was the first zombies game. Exactly, yeah. No, I played zombies a little bit. Um, and I don't have Modern Warfare yet, but now I'm tempted to get it because they had a multiplayer free trial, and I had a lot of fun with it, uh, I, I regret to say. Um, but Warzone is also kind of my first real media experience with the Battle Royale, so that's part of it. It's just the novelty of that. But... You keep kind of pointing out just the loading menu for that when you're in a party and you haven't started the game yet. You're just, you just see your soldiers like endlessly kind of walking yeah. forever. It's sort of like the endless staircase in Super Mario 64. They're just constantly just going forever. And they're just constantly checking their corners, high alert at all times, always aiming down the gun, ready for anything. So they just walk endlessly. And the map in the game is just this, like, composite of some, like, seemingly fictional Russian or post-Soviet bloc. Yeah, with really short, like, sight lines because of this fog that keeps swallowing up the back half of the track. It's almost like a treadmill where you feel like the track, like, loops underneath once the fog swallows it and comes back around. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think of it as, like, the city or, like, the country in Age of Ultron that gets lifted into the sky, like, Savlakia or whatever fake Eastern European name it is. Um, But it's interesting because it also, you know, you were talking about the Highway of Death thing being attributed to the Russians. And, like, in the game, when you die the first time, you don't get kicked out immediately. You get sent to the Gulag. 
and yeah. you wait until somebody else lands in the gulag, and then you have to fight them to get out. And it just, well, it's like, literally the rock. Very, yeah, it is, and it's it's literally it's the shower scene to, from the rock. It's interesting to think about just like the gulag as this kind of trope in like American media of like just this horrible thing that like well i mean the gulag archipelago being one of like the main like tent poles of like well how many people did communism kill kind of thing exactly like you know just thinking like oh the gulag is this like clear defined real thing like it's you know in the game it's this literal like stone castle basically and it's like this horrible foucault panopticonical prison and it's like, that's not really what a, like, Soviet labor camp is like, you know, looked like, I feel like. I mean, I, you know, I don't know for certain, but I have a good feeling it, it would probably be something very different. And so it just feels like, I, I don't know, just like to this idea of like remastering. I don't know, we were always talking about remastering history. You know, this is, I guess, going back to 1917 and World War One, but it's just kind of like replaying these past conflicts. Yeah. As, as something certain this time. Actually, it's funny that you bring that up because that does relate back to Bloodshot a little bit. Um, the Because it makes everything personal. Yeah, well, I mean, even down to, like, the Gulag in uh, the Call of Duty games actually became, like, a, a pretty big sensational thing in Modern Warfare 2. The campaign for that, you're going into this, like, Gulag as a rescue mission to rescue this, like, fan-favorite character um in the story and you literally have like these breach and clear sections where you have to walk up to a door press a button to say you're ready and then you like blast it everything goes slow motion and then you you know you're able to get headshots and feel like you're in a michael bay movie or something bloodshot literally opens up with one of these like slow motion breach and clear sections where blow open the door at slow motion they throw in a flashbang the camera tracks back to follow the flashbang and in slow motion like ripple dude's faces apart because the compressed air expanding and also i mean the movie has a couple other segments that remind me just so directly of video games like there's this one part where he goes and hunts these people down uh, it's kind of the first like hunting section of the movie where he goes and drives this truck mm -hmm. into a tunnel crashes it and makes this white powder fly everywhere there are red flares that make everything just drenched in neon red and it looks like super hot where everything is just covered in white or red and it's slow motion and you see vin diesel like making these like moves that literally warp the time scale of the movie to be really mm -hmm. quick on impact but then slow back down um and i mean that pairing of like colors and the sensation of the time going forward and backward with his like decisive movements is exactly like super hot but that sequence also you see him like it's one of the first times you see his body start to get taken apart and then pull itself back together um and so it's really kind of stretched out with this crazy like red visuals and slow motion and these very kind of like, again, I mean, this is kind of going back to like visual effects altruism, but the similar to like the silky effects in like Age of Ultron, you see like his blood start to like waft in the air, like this very elegant smoke and then come back together. And it rem the mist. it like you'd like have parts where it like sees through different parts of his body but that have been shot through and then are repairing themselves in this way that reminds me of the video game for uh, the X-Men Origins movie, Wolverine. Oh, yeah, Wolverine Uncaged. Yeah. Or un, un something. I, I think it's like Uncaged Edition or something. Oh, man, what a game. That's a really fucking, like, just yeah. 
gory. Well, it's you're just, just ripping to going shreds. through the forest, getting shot by mercenaries, and then you're like, I mean, video games have always, not always, but for a long time, relied on healing yourself the call of duty games are always about kind of letting your health recharge but even i mean something like wolfenstein you go around and find packs to heal yourself back but you're never there's never the lasting damage of a bullet going in your body and you having to run around with a gaping hole you know it's always something that you can repair and continue going forward but that game is one where you see the third person character model of wolverine be taken apart and then over time put itself back together because of that i guess that diegetic superpower that he has to be able to heal himself well, the interesting thing about Vin Diesel's body in this is that they liken Fast and Furious, sort of compare him to cars physically, uh, because he has this sort of programmable, wet-wired, networked-in body. Yeah. He is advised by Wilson Wiggins to drive a like vintage muscle car because it doesn't have any computer parts mm-hmm. in it, and so they're not going to be able to track him or like hack into his body. Yeah. But that's like the exact comparison the Fast and Furious movies make between like muscle and like hardwired, yeah. cybernetic, like souped up, NOS tanked up, like uh, import cars, you know? Yeah, no, like Vin Diesel is this true red blooded American, like muscle, basically, and he drives the classic muscle car. Yeah. He's the just GTO. like purely authentic. No, the GTO was the, um, that's the triple X car. But that's another one where that hot rod type of muscle comes in. It's the the charger, and he's contrasted, of course, with with Brian O'Connor's Nissan Skyline, and also in the it's interesting in Tokyo Drift, you know, you have uh, Lucas Black's American muscle, but it has a Japanese engine in yeah. it. Yeah. So that's another kind of like using the car as this metaphor for identity. But I mean, even going forward to Fate of the Furious, that's a movie that harkens back to different points in the franchise but is something that is about i guess like it's it's literally like a movie that is like contemplating the changeover of like the autonomy of driving the american dream the freedom and everything with autonomous cars and the movie doesn't explicitly state it but it's a it's one of the anxieties going in like the the world of cars right now but like not needing a car because you have ride sharing apps now so not even like owning the car that you actually are driving Fate of the Furious has these moments of like, I mean, it's it's one that is really, really cool in my mind, like the more time that's passed since seeing it, I kind of dread watching it again, but there's these really bold moments of like an autonomous car stampede, like in the streets, yeah. they're all like chasing after the people who are being hunted and it even in this sequence, even like quotes this, the part of Tokyo Drift where they're racing and they literally, there's like a parting of the Red Sea, but for like shoppers who are crossing the street as they drift through this intersection mm-hmm. that everybody is, has abandoned. But in this one, they kind of quote that and approach it again with autonomous cars, but you just see the cars like totally missing the turn and not knowing how to actually drift. And so it just creates this big pile up. Yeah, I mean, in the past Fast and Furious movies, Vin Diesel's identity is the car that the audience drives. Yeah. But increasingly it seems like there's this anxiety about this loss of agency and free will like in that self-driving car sequence you pointed out and in bloodshot you know it's all basically about having your will stripped away from you to the physical level of the woman in the film you know getting choked like you mentioned by guy pierce Mm -hmm. i don't know it's like some it feels also like the movie sort of takes the audience the audience's agency away a little bit because I think that there's something about 
genre films where they're always our our approach to a genre film is always predicated on our knowledge of other films in that genre and other films that use those visual tropes or the similar iconography and when the movie makes that revelation about how these memories are kind of uh, fabricated and rendered it takes like i think the audience's power of building this movie like through the pieces of of other films and it's yeah away from the audience and um and does the same thing to kind of vin diesel's character of like he loses you know he's totally programmed yeah, and actually, the more that we think about this, I made a note of a direct comparison between like this movie and Assassin's Creed, but I think this is probably the best like adaptation of Assassin's Creed so far. <laughs> In terms of, I mean, the first game being this thing where you're supposed to be going and you know killing this ancient evil order, but then you find out the technology company that is facilitating this like tech- this like historical connection between you and your ancestors and simulating that within a computer or actually a modern incarnation of that, that like ancient evil, the Templars, you know? And I mean, those games are kind of always about, I, it's, it, they're kind of about like the modern approaches to like just recreations of history in general. And sometimes the mediations yeah. that happen in the process of, you know, that kind of canonizing a vision of the past. Um, even to the point that like Assassin's Creed black flag, the one about pirates um, it's, kind of like one of the first ones that started to kind of pivot the franchise away from this like one central character and everything and and it was a bit of a point of pivoting but the out of history story in that one is actually that you're a game developer at a ubisoft studio and you're literally creating oh these historical God. you know kind of visions as a way of uh like a means of entertainment that's insane. I didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah, it's it's really um, nuts. I actually uh It's like the new nightmare of Assassin's Creed. Yeah, it's it's a very strange franchise, but one that's very interesting, but it's it is about how these kind of like visions of things and memories I mean motivate us but also are altered in a way that is supposed to motivate us. I mean, in Assassin's Creed is uh basically like Triple X but in the Middle Ages, you know, medieval parkour is very Vin Diesel, I feel like. Mm-hmm. They should have gotten him instead of Michael Fassbender. I mean, that movie I was actually thinking about earlier, but then the conversation didn't, like, it went another direction. But uh, I was thinking about that in terms of, like, Vin Diesel as a gamer and making himself projectable, because in that movie he's totally, like, playing, like, the kind of the last the last waves of, like, the edgy, you know, teen punk gamer. He's, like, playing, like, the idol image of that to the point that he's, like, skateboarding and then like doing early forms of vlogging as he like drives the senator's car off a bridge and yeah. parachutes off of it. He's like, fuck copyrights. Fuck. We love violent yeah. video games. Metal militia stickers metal. on everything. We love rap rock. Yeah. Fuck the parents. But another, the way I ended up thinking about this originally in terms of like Assassin's Creed is that there's this point in the movie where it's after Vin Diesel breaks loose. He get he hacks himself. He kind of frees himself of this, I guess like framework of control and is now kind of in control of his own body. He ends up getting stabbed with a hacking knife brought back to the technology companies, uh, uh, headquarters. And he's like standing in this white room 
that just has these kind of floating, I don't even know what they're called, just like floating little like out of focus and in focus, like digital things. I can't remember what they're called. Like Zack Snyder talks about these all the time. These little like dust particles that just give like depth, like sucker punches just bathed in these little like the shards. basic. Well, I mean, they're shards, but they're like supposed to be like directly in focus or directly out of focus, like making like the fake tilt shift look. Yeah, and the like ashes and even when and I mean Zack Snyder uses these so much to literally create interesting motion and just create feelings of immersion, even when the actual actor in the scene is not doing anything and they're just talking. It's just a way of adding more just like dynamic things for your eye to look at. He's in this kind of like non space and then Guy Pierce appears and it looks like a loading screen in Assassin's Creed. Like it looks exactly like that. I got out of the movie and the friend I saw it with we both said that we both just talked about the Assassin's Creed part and knew exactly what the other person meant by it. Uh, but as they're there, it actually turns out that this is kind of a, like just a blank modeling software. It's a lot actually, now that I think about it a lot, like the matrix when they're loaded into like the, like Neo first, like gets yeah. like brought back to the base and he's put in like the little training program where it's just an empty unprogrammed space that can pivot to anything. Um, him and Guy Pierce in Bloodshot are talking, and then there ends up becoming basically a like a dock fills in around them. There's like floor put underneath them, water underneath that, objects put on the dock that aren't colored. They're not. They don't have a mesh or anything mapped onto them. They're just pure geometry. And then everything starts getting filled in with textures, and the camera starts like circling and orbiting. The camera starts like orbiting them in this way that creates like the bayhem shot effect but then as it goes you see the environment behind them have geometry applied to it then have texture then have like light shaders and stuff in like three unsynced waves so you literally see a bayhem shot as it's assembled out of just a blue screen room it's very uh, inception yeah building the dream i mean world. that bayhem shot literally made me think about this way that video games are actually rendered sometimes called frustum culling which is like the only reason most people know about this is because like it was a big discussion when like horizon zero dawn came out but frustum culling is essentially just a way of basically like like a portion of the map that pivots on a radius kind of like a radar just like rendering in based on what you need to be able to see because you're in that area of the map as a character but then as you walk away new parts of the map fill in kind of on a rotation and parts that you have abandoned like go away just because it's a way of like making it more efficiently run um and the shot like literally kind of tries at this actual rendering effect within a 3d modeling software which the movie then has within the actual images so i mean the that scene in itself being this one that is it's about the literal like the prison that vin diesel's not able to escape from within his own autonomy and his own kind of power as as a soldier who's contained but then also it, it becomes a document for how these actors are then starting in one place and then being i guess their images being taken and being applied to make this other thing that they don't actually see or know about mm -hmm. and so it kind of documents the entire process that that and then other parts of the movie actually get made using so uh any final thoughts on bloodshot the diesel effect i think that's the i mean that's probably my biggest point about the whole thing and kind of what like most of my thoughts on this thing led up to and why i liked it so much but i i feel like i don't have much else to say about it it's a bit of a meta point but 
It is very interesting. I guess that's just what a podcast is, but there are such recurring themes in these episodes yeah. out there, I feel like, you know, all of these sort of, I guess it's just because it's our brains yeah. and whatever, but, and we're attracted to certain things, but remastering history, rebooting, war, all of it, cyborgs. Yeah. Vin Diesel, autonomy, assemblages. You could very easily construct a hotbox the cinema cannon. Hotbot the cinema hot oh that's good i could i'll see if i'm bored enough to actually try to figure out how to do that but if you do want to leave you know like bot thoughts parody us a little bit rib us um you know you can always leave a message or give us a email yeah we do have those those points of contact the email being like hotbox the cinema at gmail.com um, you could call us at 615-592-1003, leave a message that you could play on the air, criticisms, um, whatever you want. But both of those are in the, the Twitter bio for the show, which is at Hotbox the Cinema. If you've got a correction or a point to push back on or something you'd like us to talk about more or something you never want us to talk about again or something you'd like us to, you'd like to recommend to us, you know, yeah. any and all kind of things. And um, especially because we have, I think, a, a, a little special coming up mm -hmm. that will involve some people beyond ourselves. 420 holiday celebration, as it were. Yeah. Um, We're going to try our hand out at the, the Twitch streaming. Um, so we're going to be recording the, the whole thing and try to release that as a, an audio thing in this podcast feed where you're listening. Um, but we're going to try our hand out at this, this Twitch. We're going to see if we can get some ninja money in the, in this podcast <laughs> and get some sponsorships. Yeah. So twitch.tv slash hotbox, the cinema on April 20th, of course, uh, at 420, I suppose Eastern time. Um, yeah, that's the easiest, I guess. We'll be doing a little... Oh my god, I just knocked this lighter over that I just noticed there. Um, we'll be doing a little uh, a special program that we're calling Hotbox the Cinema Presents Hotbox the Livestream, a 420 variety program. Um, oh, no, you know what it should have been called? What? It should, instead of the gong show, it should just be the bong show. Oh, wow, the bong show. There we go, we got it. So, you know, we've, we've been talking about some guests that we're going to line up some folks to call in and interview, shoot the shit with, you yeah. know, toke it up, talk it out, all of that. Um, mm. You know, maybe we'll have some clips going. Maybe we'll also do a surprise little live streaming screening after the discussion. We got about a week to figure out from recording this to doing that how how to twitch. Yeah. So I, I think especially for that occasion, we would really love if you're listening and you have something that you want to say, we would really love for you to call in and leave a message or write an email because, you know, we're wanting to hear from some, you know, don't, don't maybe, uh, go, go too in depth, but succinctly, you know, if you want to tell us about, uh, an iconic moment of stonedness in a movie that you love or a great experience that you've had, something that was opened up for you. Yeah. Uh, or just, I mean, ways that maybe just like a movie you expected to do one thing had like the total adverse effect. Yeah. Not even literally, you know, stoned experiences, but just like 
changes in perception and discovery um, kind of moments that were eye-opening and mind-expanding for you, perhaps, when it comes to media. We would love to, to hear those things. Or if you just have general stuff you want to say to us on 420, uh, you know, yeah, do that. And we'll also, because it's Twitch, you know, while we're doing it live, you can be watching and chat along, comment, and we'll respond in real time. Won't that real be Real time interaction. Here we go. Make it a game, you know. Yep. Gamify the podcast. That's true. Yeah, but so that is uh, going to be April 20th, I guess, at 4, 4.20 Eastern Standard Time. That's the problem about Central Time is you, everyone always asks, what does that mean in my time? I can't believe, you know, as we were talking about quarantine cinema earlier, um, I forgot to mention that I've gotten really into TikTok. Uh, throughout quarantine i've been making some tiktoks honestly i don't follow that many people on tiktok i follow this kid popeye's chicken sandwich i uh i downloaded i downloaded tiktok because i knew as soon as all these like middle schoolers and high schoolers and elementary just all these teenagers got access to tiktok and were just going rabid in quarantine they would probably develop like a new comedic language or something so i wanted to be able yeah. to be there for that and it's paying off it's pretty great my friend jr has been making some pretty amazing uh cinephile themed tiktoks i've also i'm also following nicholas maduro on tiktok um the leader of venezuela he has his own tiktok account and you know it's a good time you see some weird shit on there and yeah a yeah, new language truly is emerging um, and perhaps we'll maybe at some point even do a, a TikTok episode. Who knows? For the or we could publish an episode on TikTok for the sixty-second portions. That would honestly be good. That's the next move. Like fuck these two-hour-long episodes. Yeah, the only way I can I know to publish a podcast for free is <laughs> upload it minute by minute onto TikTok. TikTok, but like is my me RSS dancing feed. to it. Or like me doing skits to it or something for every minute. Okay, folks, until then, until April 20th, uh, keep on token. We'll see you then. It's been a